Good morning. Welcome again to Covenant Presbyterian Church. Uh, my name is John Kidd. I'm the youth pastor here. It's my privilege to work with ages 6th grade through 12th grade. And if you're a guest with us, once again, let me say um, we are glad that you have joined us in worshiping with us this morning. Today we find ourselves in the middle of a series in the book of John, the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. This is the fourth book in the New Testament, so it's towards the back if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. Start looking in the last quarter of the book. You'll find it in the back. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of the seat back pocket in front of you um, or next to you. I'd like for everyone in the whole room to try to have the words in front of them this morning. For the past two weeks, we've been talking about sheep and shepherds. And for some of you, that's your wheelhouse. And for others of you, you're so far removed from the agrarian system and agricultural world, you want us to stop. But we're not going to stop. We're going to continue because in John chapter 10, this is the metaphor that's brought before us. Last week, we talked about shepherds, and we learned that shepherds are tough folks. They are hardy and persistent and sacrificial, a rugged set of mostly men. Well, sheep are a different story. Sheep are cute and snuggly, and little children's toys are made to be little sheep. And if you're driving along the road, you can see up on the hill a green pasture, and sheep are grazing, and they're so pretty. We were discussing this in our home group a few weeks ago as we were talking through the sermon notes as a group, talking about the sheep and just the unique nature of sheep. And the unique nature of sheep is that they're on a mission to get hurt and die. If you have worked with sheep, you know this. Um, Others of you choose to work with cattle because sheep are this way. But from the moment that they start to be born, they often need help. When a sheep is in the process of being born, they need assistance regularly so they don't die. They need help finding good food. They need help finding a good source of water. They need help not getting lost and finding their way home. They're prone to injury and death. So we learn that sheep need shepherds. Or in our day and age, sheep need good, attentive, caring farmers and a really good fence. Now, we are sheep, Jesus says. And this metaphor that he brings to the table is not meant to flatter us, it's not meant to boost our egos, because you just heard what I described about sheep. And this is to help us understand, to have a proper view of who we are, particularly in our relationship to a holy God. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we read our text this morning, because Jesus will once again, and for the last time, appeal to this metaphor of sheep. We're looking at chapter 10, verse, starting in verse 22. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read God's Word? God's Word is holy. It's set apart. It's different than any other book that we hold. It's perfect in nature because God is the one who inspired it. So everything we're about to hear right now is exactly true. Would you give it your full attention? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask right now that you would allow us to discern what is true from your word through the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would use this word to teach us, to rebuke us, to encourage us as your flock. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our good shepherd. Amen. You may have a seat. I'll warn you, I've been struggling with a cold for 20 days now. Um, I'm going to cough at some point, or five times. Um, Bear with me. The context of our passage here, John starts out by setting it very specifically for us. This conversation happens, he says, during the Feast of Dedication. And if you recall, many of our interactions with Jesus throughout the Gospel of John come in the framework of some special days in the calendar of the people. Back in chapter 2, we're introduced to a situation happening during Passover. Chapter 5, on the Sabbath. Chapter 7 and 8, during the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 9, again, on the Sabbath. And here, John sets the stage, this is during the Feast of of dedication, also known as the Festival of Lights. Today, this is still celebrated um, as the holiday known as Hanukkah, which is celebrated in December. This feast commemorated the rededication of the temple, which took place in 165 BC. Um, A neighboring country had conquered Jerusalem, and the temple had been desecrated. Uh, uh, Altar to Zeus was set up on the altar in the temple, and they had uh, outlawed the worship of Yahweh. The Jews took back that area, and to culminate this victory, they have the celebration, the Feast of Dedication. So this was uniquely a celebratory feast, a liberation feast, one where they could once again properly worship the one true God. And so they marked it by the use of lights, and it was celebrated in a similar way to the Feast of Tabernacles, lasting eight days. And it's during this feast that Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem for the last time, prior to him coming again during the triumphal entry about four months later. And we're told that Jesus is walking in the colonnade of Solomon, which is just this um, portico on the side of the temple on the east side. And so it's a winter's day. He's walking in the colonnade. And the Jews find him there, and they gather around him, it says, and the word there literally is they encircle him, and they ask him a question, and it's more of a demand than a question, it's an accusation, how long will you keep us in suspense? That can also be rendered, how long will you keep annoying us, or how long will you disturb our souls? Tell us plainly if you are the Christ. Now, if you were here last week, you saw Jesus most recently identify himself as the Good Shepherd, which had this connection to Ezekiel 34, 
And in saying that he's the good shepherd, the savior of the sheep, it's a veiled claim. It's not explicit. It was veiled. But he's basically saying, I am the God who will save the sheep, the one that was mentioned in Ezekiel 34. But the Jews want him to say it even more plainly than that. They want a clear word by which they can bring charges against him. Augustine said it this way, on on this winter's day, they had become icy cold to Jesus. They were far away while they stood right beside him. So in Jesus' response, we're going to see a beautiful tapestry of theology woven together. And in just a few sentences, Jesus is going to unpack some deep truths about the Godhead, about sin, and about salvation. And it's going to come as an encouragement to us. It's also going to come as a challenge to us. And so I have three simple points for us this morning. You've noticed there are no sermon notes. My apologies. So I made these points easy to remember. The sheep of the shepherd, the grip of the shepherd, and the divinity of the shepherd. Start out looking at the sheep of the shepherd. Look, put your eyes on verses 25 through 26. Jesus' response to these Jews. He says, You do not believe even though I have told you, even though I have done these miracles in my Father's name, you do not believe. They don't believe. Jesus' words and his works bore witness. They testified to the fact that Jesus had come from the Father. No one had spoken with such spiritual authority prior to Jesus. No one had come on the scene and said to the lame man, get up, or to the blind man, now you will see. Jesus came with power. He came with intentionality in healing people, and even with such great intentionality that he only healed some people, and he only performed some miracles, all for the purpose of confirming his spiritual authority, revealing his deity, validating the message that the kingdom of God is at hand. With the witness of Jesus' words, And his works, these Jews, they did not believe. They boasted that they were God's special chosen race. They were in positions of spiritual authority. They knew the Old Testament. Yet with all of that, the Jews rejected the chosen Messiah. Beware of the false prophets, Jesus says in Matthew 7, who come to you in sheep's clothing But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. The fruits of these men were pride and malice and unbelief. Indeed, they were like the false shepherds of Israel that were referenced by the prophet Ezekiel. And Jesus here is holding them responsible for the choices that they're making. Their chosen unbelief. They were blind even though they claimed to see. And in a real sense, the the fruit of their lives is showing that they are not among the sheep of Jesus. They didn't believe. Therefore, they were not part of the flock of Jesus. On earth, we have or we make real choices in real time with real consequences. And all of us are responsible before God. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person on the planet needs 
saving because of the choices that we have made. These men, they've chosen to reject Jesus, even as they stood in the presence of God. That is true. But Jesus goes on to show us something else that is true. He takes us deeper into the spiritual realities that are outside of our space and time. Look there again at the word order he uses in verse 26. Jesus says, You do not believe because you are not my sheep. He doesn't say, You're not my sheep because you don't believe. This is very intentional. What's he getting at? Well, Jesus is kind of, he's pulling back the heavenly curtain to reveal some of the mysterious work of the Godhead that took place before the foundation of the world was laid. According to his eternal and immutable purposes, the secret counsel of his good and perfect will at work at that time, before time existed, God chose his sheep. God chose his people. Out of his free love and grace, He chose some. Spiritually, people, sheep if you will, are lost, rebellious, not worthy of choosing, not a single one worthy of choosing, but God in his grace, to the praise of his grace, chose some. This is the doctrine of election, or specifically unconditional election. Not one was worthy of choosing, but some were chosen. And others, also not worthy of choosing, God chooses to pass by. And that is to the praise of his glorious justice, because it is the just consequence of sin. So Jesus says to these men, you do not believe because you're not my sheep, revealing a hidden spiritual reality. And two things are at play here simultaneously. You have human choices and responsibility and God's sovereign electing purposes. God is completely in control of all things and humanity makes choices that they are completely responsible for and accountable for. And the spiritual mystery of these two things held together in tension covers the pages of Scripture. And the Bible does not present them as in conflict irreconcilably with each other as some Christian traditions do, but they both exist in two different spheres. And Jesus exposes that these men were not the sheep of the shepherd because they were stubborn in their unbelief, human choice and responsibility, and because they were not chosen of the flock, God's sovereign election. But he keeps speaking. Look at verse 27. And he flips this conversation into the positive, telling us about his sheep, the sheep of the shepherd, My sheep, he says, hear my voice. They are not deaf to it. They don't ignore it. They listen. They hear. And they choose to respond. You will know them by the fruit, Jesus says. The sheep of Jesus respond to the call of the shepherd. To those who respond in repentance and faith, Jesus will give the gift of eternal life. Every single person who responds in faith in Christ will have eternal life. Well, but but what if those who want to respond aren't part of the elect, you might ask? And that's a good question. 
Well, the Bible is clear that that's not how it works. God's electing purposes before the beginning of time in a sphere that is outside of our knowledge and understanding and visibility. Those electing purposes are revealed through the fruit of our human choices that we make in real time with real consequence. We're not called to try and discern the holy secret counsel of God that is privy only to himself. But we are called to take inventory of our own hearts, to consider our own need for a Savior. If you desire to follow Jesus, the Bible says that that is already evidence that God is at work in your life. If your faith is in Christ, the Bible says that is evidence that you are elect. If you desire to repent of sin and put your trust in the saving work of Jesus, it's evidence of God's electing you. And we don't like to talk about election very often because it can make us uncomfortable. And the Bible is very comfortable with that language. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But not only are Jesus' sheep chosen by God before the foundation of the world, outside of time, in a realm that we're not privy to, even more than that, the Bible says that the Christian can have confidence of his or her election and calling in real time, on earth. You can be sure, the Bible says, that you are a sheep of the shepherd. In the midst of God's sovereign electing, he gives us the security of being able to know that we are his. The Apostle John, in his um, shorter epistles towards the end of your Bible, in 1 John, goes to great lengths to encourage the church, to encourage the Christian with the truth that you can know these things. He says it over 20 times. You may know. You can know. You know. Christian, do you seek to keep God's commandments? Not are you perfect, but do you seek to keep them? You may know, John says in chapter 2, verse 3. Do you abide in the truth? Is truth what you're seeking, and truth is what you desire, God's truth, then you can know, chapter 2, verse 24. Do you love righteousness more than you love sin? You may know, chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 29. Do you love the brethren? You may know, chapter 3, verse 14. Do you have the conviction of the Holy Spirit inside of you? Do you know that sin is wrong and you feel guilty for it before a holy God? You may know, chapter 4, verse 13. Do you believe in Jesus? You may know, chapter 5, verse 13. These are the qualities of Jesus' sheep. If you call yourself a Christian, yet when you hear those questions that I just read, you answer with ambivalence or with a no, then the Bible would tell you you should not have confidence that you are one of Jesus' sheep. The Bible tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And by that, we're to exercise our faith actively by believing and repenting and trusting God and loving God. And in this, we are working in response to our salvation that work is a response it does not earn our righteousness before god 
But if you're not living in those ways, you don't have desire to love God or keep his commandments, then you should not have confidence that you are one of the flock. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So I would challenge you this morning, each of you, to take inventory of your own heart. Take inventory of what you believe. Ask yourself, what what do I really trust in? What am I trusting in to make up for all of those things that I have done wrong? Are you a sheep of the shepherd, Jesus? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be given eternal life. You will never perish. You can know that for certain. Let's look at our second point. It bleeds into it. The grip of the shepherd. Turn again there, your eyes, to verses 27 through 29. Here, this is the good shepherd, and he's speaking about his relationship with his sheep. And Jesus' tone changes here. This is personal. There's a kindness in his voice. And you have to remember, he's talking to a group of men who have surrounded him, who are conspiring to kill him. Okay? Jesus knew that. It was obvious. But in this moment, it's as if Jesus looks up over their heads and like into the heavens and starts speaking about something wonderful. And so he turns... These guys are ready to kill him, and he says, my sheep, let me tell you about my sheep. My sheep listen. They hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. The emphasis here is on the shepherd's calling and establishing relationship with the sheep. We need to be reminded that sheep don't choose the shepherd. Sheep are selected, sheep are purchased to be part of a flock. These particular sheep are known. Jesus knows how many are in his flock. Jesus knows the exact number of his sheep. No one will be lost. Jesus knows them personally, their temperament, their weaknesses, their struggles. And he's called, the scriptures tell us, each of his sheep by name. Heather, it's time to come. Greg, follow me. Mike, come along now. Angie, let's go. Nathan, you too. He says to them, I will give you rest. I will give you eternal life. And he speaks of eternal life over and over again. John records it in chapter 3, 16, 647, 654, 668, 
This is a reality for Jesus' sheep only because Jesus, the good shepherd, will be the one to die for his sheep so that they may live eternally. The death and resurrection of the shepherd secures this eternal life for the sheep. An everlasting life. A life void of decay and sin and cancer and sadness and grief and loss. Christian, it's okay and it's good for you to long for that eternal life. To think about it, to hope for it, to praise God that it exists in your future. That's a good thing. It's going to be more than we can ever dream of. But living in the here and now as sheep... You might be thinking, I'm often thinking, well, I'm, I'm prone to wander. Um, I seem to have a knack for failing and falling back into those sins that I already said I was sorry for. How long is this shepherd going to put up with me? Might, me t- might me take me to the auction on Saturday. I'm not sure if I can make it to the end. I'm not sure if this journey is something that I'm up for. Jesus knows you. Jesus knows that we experience these feelings and these thoughts. And to them, his word to you this morning is, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. No one can take you out of my hand. This harkens to the language of Psalm 95, which says, Because he is our God and we are people of his pasture and sheep of his hand, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And one way that we harden our hearts is to doubt these words of Jesus when he says, I've got you. How many of you have ever shaken hands with somebody who has a strong grip? You've done that? You know it if you've done it. Nine years ago, I was at David Shank's house. Um, one of the first times I did something to help serve the body at this church because I had just moved into town. And I met Marshall Butler. And when Marshall Butler greeted me, he about broke my hand. Then I met Chet Landis. Chet Landis will crush the 27 bones in your hand by being friendly. The strong grip. It's intimidating, but there's also security in it. Saying, I've got you. I'm not going to let go. But what Jesus is saying here is something more than that. It's not hand in hand. It's better. Isaiah 51 says that God has covered you in the shadow of his hand. His hands are large enough, if you will, to have the whole of your life in them at once. He's holding all things secure. 
And this is the beautiful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Augustine puts it this way again. He says, God is the one who worketh that we come to him. So he will worketh that we do not depart. The perseverance, this is really important, is not ours. The perseverance is God's. God is the one who promises to keep you. God is the one who promises to hold his church in his hands, to carry us along into the end. Recently, I made a a risky decision with our youth. In the age of being cool and hip and relevant, and by using the word hip and relevant, I am not cool. Um, I decided I was going to teach the Westminster Confession of Faith to the high school Sunday school class. How's that for being hype? I told them I wanted to do this for one primary reason. The primary reason I wanted to introduce them to this document was so that they could be smarter than all of you. Just kidding. Kind of not joking, though. Now, many folks in our denomination would say that they subscribe, this is the way you say it, I subscribe to the Westminster Standards. Okay? That means you agree with everything that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms. The problem is many people have never read it or never spent much time with it, or maybe not in the last decade. And so I want to expose the youth to these amazing tools, showing them their biblical foundations so that they have this best Bible study ever to help them along in their lives. I want you to listen to what the confession says about God persevering our faith. I'm going to paraphrase, shorten it up a little bit for you. Chapter 17, paragraph 1. Those that God has effectually called can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere until the end and be eternally saved. Paragraph 2. This perseverance of the saints depends not on their own free will, but flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, depending on the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ. That's truth that I need to be reminded of. The confession and catechisms provide a thoughtful, organized like trellis or framework that helps these complex biblical truths, makes them easier to grasp and to remember. You should check it out. Otherwise, the high schoolers might be schooling you on the way home. God will persevere his sheep. No one will snatch them out of his hand. Jesus will not let you go. Now, you're going to struggle, potentially. You might doubt. You might go back to a hated pet sin. Jesus will not let you go. Repent and believe the gospel again. You are his. You, Christian, can rest in the strong grip of Jesus. Finally, the divinity of the shepherd. Now, this really matters, okay? 
Jesus' promise to bless you, to keep you, to hold you in his hand rests on this truth. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Here, he looks at the men around him and he answers their original question plainly. I and the Father are one. This statement evokes the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where it's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, what Jesus has just said to these men is either mysteriously awesome or outrageously blasphemous. This is the framework for the Lord, liar, lunatic argument that C.S. Lewis makes. Either Jesus is truly worthy of worship or he's nuts. Now, the Greek is really important here for us to understand what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. It's been confused. Um, it was confused early on in the history of the church. Here, Jesus uses the neuter adjective, I believe, for the word one. He uses the Greek word hen. In the Shema, when Jesus quotes it in Mark 12, he uses the masculine adjective for one, which is ace. And by doing that, Jesus is not saying here, he's not making the specific claim that he is of one essence with the Father, as we affirm in the Nicene Creed. That is true, but that's not what Jesus is saying right here. What he is saying is that he and the Father are one in purpose, in will, and in nature, in this collaborating work of saving the sheep, which has started before the foundation of the world and is working itself out in real time and will depend on his death and resurrection and ascension. Jesus and the Father are one in that work. Jesus affirms a unity with the Father, which has metaphysical implications But specifically, he's saying we are one doing this with the sheep. And in that, he's making a claim to be divine. And in case you were wondering if that was really the the situation, you can just read the next sentence because these men pick up stones and they want to kill him for blasphemy. It's only because Jesus is, in fact, one with the Father God incarnate, that he can make claims concerning his sheep. Jesus is God, therefore he can effectually call, save, keep his sheep. Precisely because he's God. Only because he is God. Jesus died and rose again from the grave. That's true on Easter. It's also true every day. And that, provo- that proves that Jesus is able to say, I will keep you. That divinity of Jesus, the claim to divinity, demands a response from every single one of us. As we wrap up, I want to help us think about how to take some of these theological ideas and employ them as we walk out the door. So let's consider some theology applied as we wrap up. 
How do doctrines like election and perseverance of the saints affect us as we live every single day? A couple things to consider. First, unconditional election is extremely humbling. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's nothing in me that I can hold over or lord over my neighbor. Everything I have and everything that has a hint of goodness in me has been given to me. It's same with you. As Christians, we should be, we need to be, the humblest of people, the humblest of neighbors. Secondly, unconditional election motivates us in loving our neighbors and sharing the gospel. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what you need to remind yourself as you're going to knock on your neighbor's door and invite them over to dinner if you've never met them. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? As you're engaging in a conversation with somebody who believes other than you, you have this confidence that there is no one who can condemn you, bring charges against you. God is on your side. That gives us confidence. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and forgiveness. As we go out and interact with the world, remember, Christian, that God has shown you grace and mercy and that we should actively show that to our neighbors. Sharing with them about this good shepherd who goes after the lost sheep, the good shepherd who dies for the sheep, inviting neighbor into our lives, into our homes, into our church, so that they can hear this good news about Jesus as well. Perseverance of the saints offers hope in a very difficult and often disappointing world. Hear these words from Paul. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those who he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. He has you in his hand. He will keep you to the end. You can have hope as you navigate this broken world. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Any other outcome would be contrary to the character of God. You and me, we are in the strong grip of Jesus. He will never let you go. This morning, Christian, I want you to find rest for your souls in that and to seek to diligently be faithful in your life as we live for him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be kind to us by your Holy Spirit to allow the truths that were spoken to sink deep into our hearts 
that we might be changed, that we might be more like you. Would we lean on each other and do this well, this work well as a community, learning and growing together? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.